Hello, and welcome to Cratching the War Party. I am here with my compatriot, Daniel Larson, as we endeavor each week to challenge the prevailing narratives of the Washington blob and confront the insidious nature of U.S. primacy and its effects, not only on the rest of the world, but on Americans here at home. Today, we will be talking to Amir Hajani about the looming global food crisis as a result of the Russia-Ukraine war. But first, let's talk about developments in Scandinavia. If you are not aware, both Sweden and Finland are considering membership in NATO. This obviously would be a first for these two countries, which have remained officially neutral since World War II. They are reacting to what they say are heightened threats from Russia. Finland actually shares a long border with Russia. Both countries have been participating in recent military drills with NATO and have been considered partners of the alliance for some time. Russia has reacted to this news predictably and has threatened to put nuclear missiles in the Baltics if both Northern European countries were to join NATO. So Dan, can you set the table a bit here? Why weren't Sweden and Finland involved in the North Atlantic Treaty Alliance up to now? And what are the implications for each of them even considering it today? Sure, Kelly. So it is uh, fairly noteworthy that both of them are now moving and moving quite quickly towards applying uh, for membership, uh, which they had held off doing. In fact, the, the head of the Swedish government just earlier this year, I uh, think just even just last month, was ruling out applying to NATO and then and then changed her mind. And so the the, the shift in the ruling party in Sweden has also been quite uh, sudden and, and significant. Um, uh, Sweden was uh, a, a neutral during World War II. Uh, they, they stayed out of the war. Uh, Finland was involved in the war, in, in the so-called continu- continuation war, uh, after the Soviet invasion of Finland uh, ended. Uh, they then teamed up with the Germans uh, when the Germans were uh, invading the Soviet Union uh, in the hopes of trying to uh, make some gains uh, at the expense of the Soviet Union. And then following uh, the defeat of the Axis, uh, Finland uh, settled into a, a, a neutral position, uh, essentially as a way of gu- guaranteeing their independence from the Soviet Union uh, by uh, pledging that they would not become part of a an alliance or, or a pact against the Soviets. And and so uh, this became the sort of the, the model for uh, armed neutrality uh, in between the two Cold War blocks that were developing uh, after World War II. And of course, Sweden maintained its neutrality that it had already had uh, during the war. Um, and it, it, neutrality has worked out very well for both of these countries. Uh, they have they were left alone. They were left in peace. Uh, they developed uh, very successfully into uh, pretty much model democracies. Uh, they're, they're very wealthy countries as well. And uh, so they, they've enjoyed all of the benefits of being uh, in a peaceful Europe uh, without having to contribute uh, to any uh, security organizations. Uh, although the, in, in some cases, I know that the Swedish government has actually joined in sometimes uh, with military missions. Uh, the, the NATO operation in Libya, I believe, uh, the Swedish uh, took part in that, at least in a limited capacity. Uh, and so that was a an example of how they've been willing to, to work alongside NATO or even fight alongside NATO uh, without being a part of it. Uh, but it's uh, it is a huge shift, and, and the shift in public opinion has been quite dramatic in just the last few years. I, I followed this issue uh, along with other NATO expansion issues for a long time, and the the polling on this was always consistent that that 
significant majorities didn't want to join the alliance in both countries. And that was true even up until last year. And then with the invasion, and then of course uh, the evidence of the atrocities that have taken place uh, in Russian-occupied territories, uh, really drove public opinion in the other direction. And so it's it's understandable that they are interested in joining. Uh, but the, the, the real question I think that we have to ask is, does it make sense for the alliance to add on even more members, even if they are fairly capable members as, as Sweden and Finland are, right? This is not like we're adding on another Montenegro. Uh, these are actually uh, capable countries. Yeah. And, and, would, and would, add, would really add something to the alliance for a change, unlike a lot of the new members. Um, but, but does it still make sense to keep expanding uh, when you already have such a large, unwieldy alliance as we have? And do we actually have a plan for defending them? Uh, Chris Chivas, I think, uh, wrote a piece, I think it was for Carnegie, just last week, spelling out uh, some of the, the potential pitfalls or some of the potential problems with bringing Sweden and Finland into the alliance. And, and one of the, the big ones is, okay, you bring them into the alliance, now you're on the hook for defending them. Do you have a plan for defending an 850-mile border wow. between Finland and Russia? Yeah. And, and using what for troops? And, you, and, 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 who, and where are they going to be based? And, and, and so on. I mean, lots of practical questions that didn't get asked before the second round of expansion that brought in the Baltics and the other Eastern European countries. These are the kinds of questions that need to be asked, and, and we need to have some very good answers for them before we consider bringing any more, anyone else in. Uh, and then I think that's that's the, the main issue now. So do you think, I mean, Putin's main uh, red line was NATO expansion uh, by uh, through Ukraine. And I don't think at any point he was actually talking about Sweden and Finland. But as a result of his invasion of Ukraine and all of uh, the developments we've seen since then over the last month, two countries who hadn't been talked about before are now wanting to get in. So did he not foresee this, <laughs> that oh. his own actions might have spurred a further expansion crisis for, for Russia? Um, and how do you feel about his reaction to it, his threats to put nuclear missiles in the Baltics as a result? So the, on, on the threats, I, I think the, the way that the, the Swedes and the Finns would look at it is that the, the Russians already have weapons in Kaliningrad or could have weapons in Kaliningrad, which is the little uh, exclave uh, part of Russia that was held over uh, that they had, they had annexed uh, at the end of World War II. Um, and so for, for, from, their, from the perspective of the Swedes and the Finns, uh, these, these threats are sort of redundant or you know, they, they, already, they already perceive already a threat there. coming from those places. And so they're really just kind of piling on with, with additional threats, uh, which is only going to make NATO seem more attractive to those two states. Uh, so, I, in terms of the threats, I, I don't think they're, they're, I don't think they're going to work, or they're going to they're going to drive those countries even faster into the alliance. Um, I think the 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 main difference between these states, uh, say in Ukraine, is that Ukraine was part of the Soviet Union and and historically was part of the Russian Empire before that, 
and and holds much greater significance uh, for Putin and for many Russians uh, than than say Finland, even though Finland was once upon a time part of the Russian Empire too. Uh, those those territories don't have the same uh, meaning; they don't have the same connection to Russia, and so the, it's not as much of a this emotional and, and political issue uh, as as things related to Ukraine are. And so I think uh, Moscow is not going to be happy about it if these states do actually join the alliance. But I think their reaction is going to be much more muted, uh, both because they don't really care about those states as much. And I don't think they have the means to do anything about it anyway. They'll, they'll be, they're so bogged down in Ukraine now that whatever it was uh, that they might have been able to do in the past uh, is no longer an option. Um, and so, yeah, I, I don't think Putin foresaw many things uh, correctly when he embarked on this. Uh, he, he seems to have thought that he, they were going to win within a few days, that the Ukrainian state was going to collapse and he was going to pick up the pieces. Uh, and, and clearly that's not the case. And, and we know uh, with even greater certainty, or he should know with even greater certainty, that invading a country like Finland would be a, a real fool's errand. Uh, it obviously didn't even work very well for Stalin uh, when, uh, when the Soviets tried it back in the 30s. So it's, uh, I don't think we're, we're looking at a, a destabilizing crisis of the same kind that we had with Ukraine, uh, simply because the, the Russians are in no position to, to retaliate in a significant way uh, or, to, or to act out in a significant way uh, as they've already done in, in Ukraine. Right. And it's not as though NATO isn't already at their back door through Finland, because, as we said in the opening, that Finland and Sweden have already been serving as security partners of the alliance and are drilling with them and are clearly more aligned with the West and, and NATO already. Um, but I'm wondering, how is this being received in Washington? I would imagine there are many politicians, um, uh, interests, uh, military, industrial interests, kind of uh, salivating over the idea of two uh, big countries like Sweden and, and Finland, uh, wealthy countries joining the alliance and the prospects of um, you know, greater investment there in, in Western uh, hardware and military assets. And uh, this could be a real boon uh, for, for NATO itself, which was struggling uh, up until now and um, trying to maintain or sustain its, its uh, mission in the world and had been sort of the, the, the target of a lot of people who were saying, hey, maybe it's time to rethink NATO, uh, rethink uh, the United States investment in NATO. And, and here's a prospect of, like you said, two very capable countries possibly joining. Well, I, I mean, I'm sure there's, there is an appetite in Washington for this. And I, I think there's, you see a lot of enthusiasm for bringing them into the alliance, uh, if only as a way of, of sort of rubbing it in the Russians' face. Yeah. And, and showing that, that Putin's uh, gamble uh, backfired on him uh, quite uh, spectacularly. Uh, but that, you know, that, that's, that enthusiasm needs to be tempered by recognition that we're, we're talking about security guarantees 
uh, we're, we're talking about pledges to go to war on behalf of these countries in the event that any of them is ever attacked. And so th that needs to be taken a lot more seriously than it's been taken in the past. Uh, NATO expansion has been treated increasingly like a, a sort of social club for democracies, a way of proving that you're a part of the club, a, a real European country, so to speak. Uh, and so that that's not a good enough standard anymore. We, we need to actually decide whether we have vital interests in defending the sovereignty and territorial integrity of Sweden and Finland. We haven't ever thought that we had those interests there before now. So why do we have them? Why would we have them in the future? When, when, did, when did this change happen? Or is it simply about spiting Russia, in which case that's not a good enough reason either? Uh, so there, there needs to be a, a serious debate this time about NATO expansion, uh, not the, the sort of rubber stamp approach that we had to the second round, uh, where the Senate voted overwhelmingly to bring all these states in without a second thought. And it took us, I think after that round was completed, it took us the better part of a decade even to come up with a defense plan for some of the countries that we pledged to defend. And as it stands right now, those defense plans are probably inadequate uh, if we're taking these commitments seriously. And so the, that's what we really have to, to ask ourselves, how many security dependence or how many security commitments are we willing to have? And do we really need to be adding more in Europe at a time when the Europeans are proving that they can actually take up more of the burden themselves? Uh, so why do, why do we need to be making that commitment uh, rather than seeing this as a, a way for the Europeans to build up their own uh, autonomous uh, security arrangement uh, and, and to provide for it for themselves. Uh, because obviously the, to the extent that the U.S. has real security interests at stake in the world, uh, it's going to be increasingly in Asia that we're going to be paying most of our attention and devoting most of our resources so adding on more allies and, and more commitments in Europe at this stage really seems uh, to be going backwards from where we need to go. Yeah, I mean, you're really laying out a rational argument there. Um, but as you know, and as our listeners at Crashing the War Party know, then in Washington, uh, these arguments are, are often not made with uh, rational uh, statements, but mostly emotional and what I'm hearing in Washington today is that this is a great time to start boosting our defense budgets and boosting our presence uh, in Eastern oh, right. Europe yeah. via yeah. NATO. And so I think it's going to be some time before we could actually step back and start having these conversations about our vital interests. Because I think I think these 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 warmongers and hawks and pro uh, NATOites have bought at least five to 10 years of time in which they can justify all of their um, the, the, the blow up of these uh, the spending uh, programs and, and mission statements, mission creep, whatever you want to call it because of, of the Russian invasion, unfortunately. I think we, we had begun to start having those conversations in earnest um, until uh, the invasion. Right, well, and I know uh, uh, Stephen Wertheim has talked about the need for the U.S. to exercise strategic discipline now more than ever uh, when, when we clearly do have capable European allies that are, are willing to step up, that are willing to do more for their own security, 
we, we need to seize on that moment instead of discouraging them by continuing to boost our spending. Because the, the, the surest way to discourage allies from t- picking up their share of the burden uh, is to, to fill the gap with more of our own spending and our, more of our own troops. And, that's, and I, I'm afraid you're right that that is where things are headed in Congress. Uh, everybody is suddenly uh, very excited. Uh, now, you know, now we can spend $800 billion, Now we can spend $900 billion a year. Uh, and you know, the sky's the limit. Because uh, you know, supposedly we have been underfunding the military. This is the the new, or it's not new, but this is the, the recurring <laughs> line. Yes, the, the renewed line coming from Hawks that oh, it's it's been so badly underfunded at seven hundred billion a year. Uh, we need we need at least another two hundred or three hundred billion a year just to catch up to where we where we should have been. And so you know, it's it's this crazy. Uh, profligacy that's that's taken hold uh and and that's and that's one of the reasons why we don't have that strategic discipline that Stephen was talking about because when you have that much money sloshing around in the pentagon no one has to make any hard choices no one has to to make any trade-offs just give everybody uh whatever they want and and it's it's not good for our strategy it's not good for our security and and ultimately it's it's not really good for the military because it ends up uh, making the military much less effective than it, it could be, uh, and it ends up funding lots of projects that, that really don't need to be funded. And that takes away from the resources that we can devote to other things here in the United States, uh, which, which are, those are the things that are being, uh, if anything, are being underfunded, I think. And, and that's, that's where we need to be paying more of our attention anyway, because, if we keep neglecting things at home the way that we have been for, I mean, take your pick, 30, 40 years. I mean, you, you could, you could pick almost any length of time. We, we've been neglecting the home front so long that we're, we're in, in a really terrible position if we actually ever have to face off against a, a serious adversary that's on par with us in terms of technology and, and wealth. Uh, and I, you know, I, I hope we, we don't have to do that. I hope we can find a way to avoid doing that. Uh, because right now we're, we're not in a good position to do it. Wow, today I'm very excited to introduce Amir Hajani to Crashing the War Party. Very excited to have him speaking with us today. He had recently written a piece for Responsible Statecraft, which talked about what he says is a commodity super cycle in the making and a likely global food crisis. And he has the credentials uh, to assess things this way. He is an energy lawyer and a public affairs executive also a founder and general counsel of RAK Petroleum, an exploration and production company listed on the Oslo Stock Exchange. Um, He's also currently a member of his board of directors, so he knows his stuff on that end. But he's also an intellectual. He's uh, serving as a senior fellow at the Quincy Institute for Responsible Statecraft, and his work is focused on U.S.-Iran relations, the Iran nuclear deal, Persian Gulf security, global energy security, and the implementation 
of U.S. sanctions and its impact on the world. So he is in no better place um, to talk about the issues, the confluence of the war, the sanctions, um, global inflation, and how that is affecting us all. So thanks for joining us, Amir. It's good to be with you, Kelly. So can you talk to us a little bit? And, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm pretty blown away by your credentials because it, I mean, it sounds like you have um, uh, some spectacular uh, authority on which to talk about the energy crisis, but you chose to talk about this commodities issue and the repercussions of global sanctions on Russia, but also uh, Russia's responses to those sanctioning um, in that part of the world where it is known as the breadbasket, that this is causing so much volatility. So I was wondering if you could just give us maybe a bird's eye view of that ripple effect, maybe both on the food uh, and commodities uh, uh, plane, but also um, energy and how all of that might be impacting not only the globe, but um, uh, American consumers as well. Right. Well, thank you for that introduction. Yes, um, I think the energy issue is is very well digested because energy is talked about so much um, in the news. Uh, the energy business is still the biggest business in the world from uh, upstream oil and gas production uh, to the midstream, the pipelines, and then to the downstream, the petrochemicals, to the stuff that we use every day that derive from it, from our cell phones you know, to cleaning products and so forth. Um, and that's why we in the United States were very energy conscious. We always have been. Uh, energy prices sometimes can swing elections. Um, so I think the American consumer digests that, you know, Russia is a big energy producer. Um, it's one of the largest in the world, both of oil and natural gas. And because Russia is at war right now and the U.S. and its allies and European, Europe in particular uh, have put sanctions on Russia, uh, although not on their energy sector, um, you know, that's caused uh, a rise in oil and gas prices. Um, what's less understood and less talked about is um, the soft commodities, um, i.e. food, things that, that, you know, corn, wheat, um, sunflower oil, soybeans. Uh, these are things that we consume every day or they're used as food for animals that we consume every day, um, that, that keep the, the, the global uh, population fed. Um, and we've never encountered a, a situation uh, like we have today where Russia is also a net exporter, uh, along with Ukraine, of many staple commodities, essential commodities, uh, such as wheat, barley, sunflower oil. Uh, these are things that, that are used, you know, from bread to cornflakes um, to feeding uh, chickens and cows and hogs. Uh, because, of, because of this war, there has been a drastic rise in um, the price of, of these essential commodities. And that that's going to have deleterious consequences uh, for the globe. We've, we're already starting to just see it now, um, uh, mainly in the in the Middle East and in Africa, um, and, and to an extent in Asia, because 
Russia and Ukraine um, are net exporters mainly to these to these areas. And the ports in Ukraine are bombed out in the Black Sea, so they're not able to export um, uh, uh, the the wheat and the sunflower oil. Um, so therefore, that there's there's, there's going to be a deficit in these countries. As they're looking, they're scrambling around to to find these commodities. Um, and then also Russia is taking a protectionist posture, and they're saying, you know, we're going to trade uh, our wheat and our soft commodities to countries that are friendly to us. You know, we're not going to we're not going to trade with countries that are that are unfriendly to us. So this is a very very different dynamic um, than. For instance, the American consumers used to sanctions on Iran, North Korea, Venezuela. You know, these are bit players in the global economy. Russia is a major player in the global economy, not just in energy, but in in, in commodities and soft commodities. One question that I, I just love to hear answered, and I don't even know if there is a succinct answer to this question, but how much is the inflation that we are experiencing in the United States today, how much of that is overhang from the pandemic and what was already cycling through? And how much of it is um, what the ripple effect of what's happening on the, the geopolitical stage? Well, I think it's multifactorial. Uh, I think there, there is some of that is the overhang from the pandemic. We've also printed a lot of money. Um, and uh, there's a lot of uh, money right now that's, that's in circulation. It's caused a lot of rise in, in not just prices and commodities, price of everything from homes to, you know, toys at the store. Everything's gone up, right? Right. Um, but cut, then add to this a war between two essential breadbasket countries. Um, that, 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 that cocktail, if you will, uh, you know, has has produced you know a rise in in not just energy prices but also of, of food prices. Now, it's important to understand this. I think this is where consumers and, and the public sort of you know get a miss. They, they they run foul is they think, well, how, you know, why is it that it's that way? Why why are the prices going up? And 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 that is a you know require hours of discussion. But but the short short answer is that. Um, these prices trade every day on markets, right? They trade in Chicago. It's called the CBOT, the Chicago you know, um, Board of Trade trades that they trade in New York. And speculators bet on what the future price of these products are going to be. And they see what you and I just talked about, which is they see the hangover from the pandemic. They see inflation, a lot of money in circulation. And they see a war between two breadbasket countries. So they, they say, you know what? I'm betting that this price is, is, is going to be much higher in, in a few months. And therefore, once they set that price, once they, once they start betting on this stuff and the price goes up, the, the downstream effect of it, if you will, is it starts affecting you know, the price of cornflakes and the price of eggs and the, and the price of chicken and the price of, of beef. Um, and so you know, that's sort of how the, the global economy you know, works in, 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 a, in, a, in a free market. Are our, our supply supply chain issues also baked into that um, in terms Absolutely. of shipping containers and shipping being affected by blockades and um, the war itself? Um, sure. So I, I, I'm not aware of a blockade per se, but 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 the Black Sea, which for instance where Ukraine does a lot of its, its exports, um, 
a lot of those ports are under siege. So they're not able to export, number one. Uh, Number two, Russia is being very selective on who it exports to. Traditionally, Russia exports a lot of its wheat to Europe. Um, They have given mixed signals if they're gonna continue that. It's made the Europeans very tense, naturally, because the Europeans have put sanctions on Russia. The consequences of those sanctions are that the Russia is going to, you know, uh, take reciprocal measures. Um, in that in that environment, add to that that a lot of the the areas where Ukraine produces wheat and barley are battlefields now. They're they're not able to they're not able to, to farmers can't safely go and pick this stuff up and put it in silos and ship it out to ports. So. The, the people who look at this stuff, they see a supply and demand issue. They see a supply chain issue. Uh, they see protectionism coming in. Um, and so they're, they're saying that this, this the natural consequences, the, the price of all these things are going to go up. And they have gone up. We're at record levels in wheat. And that's, that's mind-blowing because you know, wheat is so essential for everything, you know, bread, what we yeah. feed our children. We're, at record, we're almost at record prices with corn and soybeans. Um, what we're also going to come to very soon record prices is the price of fertilizer. Russia is the largest exporter of fertilizer in the world. And, um, they are also now taking a very protectionist stance on who they, they, um, export fertilizer to. So, um, you know, these things all have a way of, 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 um, affecting the price of, 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 of staple commodities. Yeah. Liam here, and uh, thank you so much for coming on the show, and thanks for your article. Uh, it was very uh, illuminating for me to to think about uh, these effects uh, on the the wider world. Uh, and we know there are already many uh, serious uh, hunger crises and, and even famines in the world already. Uh, some, including Yemen and Afghanistan, were already facing worsening famines before the war started, and and both are heavily dependent on imports. Uh, and, and I think Yemen relies heavily on. Uh, on these wheat exports uh, specifically. Uh, how concerned are you with the disruptions in food supply from both Ukraine and Russia can drive many more food insecure countries into uh, actual famine-like conditions? Very concerned. Um, there's, a, there's a pretty substantial body of work that will trace the Syrian crisis of 2010, 2011, the Arab Spring, to the price of wheat in Syria and the fact that there was drought in Syria at the time. And that that drove farmers ballistic because they'd have to pay to you know to to import wheat, um, and then the downstream effect of that was to the consumers in Syria were paying record prices for bread. Um, it, it's 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 not as much talked about, but there, there's a there's a there's a good substantial body of work saying that, that was a big trigger to what happened to Syria in 2011. Well, we're in a much worse place now than we were in 2011 because. Um, as you said, Dan, um, Yemen, Lebanon, um, Iran, um, many countries in the Middle East, naturally, they look to the Black Sea, Ukraine, Russia. They're importing from, from those countries. Why? Because they're closer. It's cheaper to import wheat from Ukraine than it is to, to import wheat from the United States, right? Because the shipping costs, the, the, the insurance costs, it's shorter, it's shorter distances. And these countries are, some of them are going to be unable to pay. They're going to 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 face three issues. One is the price is so high, they're unable to, they can't afford it. Two, 
because of the disruptions in, in the supply chain and Ukraine and uh, Ukraine's essentially been taking off the market a, a lot of their soft commodities. They're scram them along with the rest of the world are scrambling for supply. You know, they're 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 fighting for supply, and you know, France and Germany can you know can can absorb those costs and and, and pay those premiums. Yemen, Lebanon, Syria, Iran, not so much. Um, and and finally, the third one is Russia is becoming very protectionist. Um, uh, in in their uh, commodities exports, they they'll do it with friendly countries, and 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 they'll charge that they're going to charge premiums, but they're not going to do it to countries that they find are unfriendly to their interests. So these you know these things are are are, are going to hurt the countries that are, that are the poorest. Um, it's going to hurt many countries in Africa. It's going to hurt you know countries in the Middle East like Yemen, like Iran, like Syria, like like Lebanon. Lebanon, I think, gets 90% of its soft commodities um, imports from Ukraine. Where are they going to go to now? Um, so it's, 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 a, it's a bad cocktail. And we've, we've seen on, on smaller scales uh, the destructive effects of economic war uh, through uh, broad sanctions. Uh, we, we've seen that in many different countries that are under, uh, especially U.S. sanctions, uh, but most U.S. economic wars before now have targeted states that can't do much to fight back. As, you, as you've pointed out, Russia has the capability uh, to fight back in certain ways uh, in terms of limiting who can have access uh, to its goods, who, uh, and then, of course, the prices that they set for those things. Um, do you think the economic war on Russia is going to end up backfiring on the U.S. and its allies uh, and, and on the world at, at large? It's a, it's a, it's a great question. I, I think it's right now, it's difficult to get, a, to see sort of in the crystal ball and see how this will play out. But I think um, if we look at sort of where we are in 2022 today, we've had the pandemic. We have essentially um, a cold war brewing with China where we're, we're sort of doing a bifurcated world. Uh, globalization as we know it, as we were sort of from the '90s on till now, is 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 dead. Uh, we're looking at more regional economies. We're looking at trading with with allies and partners, and sort of having zones of of you know, trading with countries, um, blocks, if you will, whether it's the U.S. with North America and, and Europe, and and its allied partners in Asia, um, or whether it's Russia with its its sphere of influence countries in the CIS or China, you know, in, in Southeast Asia and, um, uh, and, and, and countries in, in countries like Russia who, who are its neighbor. Um, that, that dynamic I think is going to accelerate um, where we want to make sure that, okay, for, for instance, here in North America, we want to make, we're very lucky in North America. America is, is a net exporter of soft commodities. You know, we produce wheat, we produce corn, we produce soya, you know, we're, we're, we're blessed. Um, but on other products, you know, we rely on the supply chain. When the supply chain is in, in China and, and uh, Russia on certain things, um, that will make us very jittery. So we're going to try and move those supply chains to, if not the United States, countries that, are, that are, have friendly posture to the United States. They're not geopolitical competitors. That's going to accelerate. We've seen that accelerate. 
for Europe, that that's pretty much a catch-22 because Europe has this delicate dance with Russia. You know, Russia is right there. There are many Europeans who feel you know Russia should be part of the European um, uh, economic infrastructure, and that was the bet that you know Germany and France had placed uh, for many years. But with its invasion of Ukraine, they're rethinking that. Um, the, the problem for them is that when it comes to natural gas, they haven't found a cheaper alternative than piping natural gas from, from Russia. The, the flip side of that is, though, that when Russia's interests are not aligned with Europe and there's a war in Ukraine, essentially Europe is financing the war by sending a billion euros a day buying you know, Russian natural gas. And the Germans and the French don't want to hear about sanctioning Russian gas exports. And and the and sanctioning the Russian banks that process those payments. So you know you've got this interesting dynamic. So where is where is Europe going to turn for natural gas? That that, that that's that's a that answer has a long tail. You were they're trying. The U.S. is trying. They're looking. Qatar. They're trying to cobble together something. But but you know, is that going to be as cost effective as as piping natural gas from Russia? Who knows. Right, it's it's a, a big uh, challenge, a big headache for those countries uh, as as we're seeing, um, and there there have been increasing calls for an oil and gas embargo on Russia. Uh, I guess the EU is is moving in that direction and saying that uh, member states will have be given some time to find alternatives, uh, but the, the the goal is, I guess, eventually to cut them off completely by the end of the decade. Um, well, I, I don't know that. That'll actually happen. I guess Hungary just came out saying that they they will oppose any uh, cutoff or any embargo uh, that comes up uh, for a vote. Um, Who did this? This uh, the Hungarian government did. Yeah, um, which is not surprising given their other positions. But um, that brought to mind a story that I was reading this week. Uh, it was talking about uh, the U.S. and its allies planning for a strategy of long-term isolation. That was the phrase that the report gave uh, the, the name of the strategy. And and I, it got me to thinking, is it even possible to, to actually isolate Russia given how important it is in so many different markets and and how many trading partners it has uh, around the world? Uh, and, and if it were possible, uh, what would be the overall consequences of, of trying to cut off a country of that size with that many resources uh, to try to cut it off from the world economy. Well, you know, Russia may not see itself isolated because there's many countries that have not signed up for the Russian sanctions. And, um, you know, they, they will do business with those countries. There are countries in the U.S. partners in the, in the Persian Gulf who haven't signed up for those sanctions. Um, so I think the long term, as long as this war rages on and Putin's still in, you know, Putin's in power and Russia's posture hasn't changed, I think that is what the U.S. and its allies are going to try and do. But they're going to do it for themselves. They'll try and cut Russia off from themselves. I don't think you can cut Russia off from the world because <laughs> um, there's China. China's not going to sign up for that. It uh, doesn't look like India is going to sign up for that. Um, and many countries in Africa, you know, or I don't even know one country in Africa, in, in the continent of Africa, that signed up for it. Um, 
because they're going to say, you know, we need Russian arms, we need Russian food, um, uh, commodities exports. And then you also have Brazil and countries in, in Latin America, South America, who haven't signed up for that. Um, so I think Russia will figure a way out to trade with these countries. And let's not forget the, the, the biggest revenue generator for Russia is its energy exports. That's not been sanctioned. Um, there's a plan to, you know, as you said, by the end of the decade, well, a decade's a long time. A lot can happen in a decade, <laughs> you know? So um, if, you know, the war stops and, Russia Russian leadership changes or their posture changes, you know, all this can go out the window because I don't think, I don't think Europe wants to be at a place where they are isolated from Russia long-term um, if facts on the ground change. I think they, they, they view them, they very much view their, their future if there is no Putin or if there's no war, you know, as one of collaboration with, with Russia. It's just, it's just, that's just been their posture. Well, I think we've run out of time, but I really want to thank you uh, for coming on and, and, and talking through some of these things. I know um, that this is going to be an issue as Americans look at you know continuing gas prices and food prices and the inflation and its effect on their own pocketbooks, but also as Dan brought up, you know the effects on, on co- countries that have already been suffering from war and famine and like in the case of Yemen, um, their own blockade imposed on them. So um, we hope to have you back to maybe talk about uh, developments as, as they arise, um, hopefully in a more positive um, direction. Let's hope. Thank you again for tuning into today's episode. If you enjoy and value real conversations such as these, please leave us a five-star rating on your favorite podcaster of choice. Right now, Crashing the War Party can be found on Stitcher, TuneIn, and at Substack at crashingthewarparty.substack.com, where you can also sign up for our newsletter. Special thanks to our editor, Remzo W. Martinez, the Crashing the War Party team, and to you, our listeners. Let's create a more peaceful world, one episode at a time.